0: From the University of Sydney Business School, this is Sydney Business Insights.
1: And this is Corona Business Insights. I'm Sandra Peter.
0: And I'm Rima.
1: And with everything that's been happening, it's difficult to understand what COVID-19 will mean for the business world. So in this series, we've been unpacking its impact on business, economy, industry, government, workers
0: and society. And this podcast is part of a large initiative by the University of Sydney Business School. Our COVID Business Impact Dashboard is a living initiative which we constantly update with insights and resources from academics, from industry experts, from Nobel Prize winners, movers and shakers.
1: And of course, you can find all of these resources online at sbi.sydney.edu.au slash coronavirus.
0: And today we talk about how telemedicine or telehealth is evolving with the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: So telemedicine and telehealth, the multitude of remote healthcare technologies and services have been around for a very, very long time, but they've had a huge uptake with millions and millions of people being in lockdown around the world and requiring more healthcare than ever before.
0: And this is, of course, not just about delivering health care to do with the COVID-19 pandemic, but also to prevent people from having to go to the doctor when their suburb, their city is in lockdown, to deliver any kind of health care that can possibly be delivered via the phone, via video uplink or other technologies.
1: Before we have a look at how telemedicine and telehealth have been transformed through this pandemic, it's worth spending a minute to make sense of what telemedicine and telehealth broadly encompass. Because on the one hand, telehealth can comprise of virtual interactions between individual doctors and other doctors or are the nurses in other hospitals at the distance, but it also involves the relationships more traditionally understood as telemedicine, which are between doctors and their patients.
0: So in the doctor-to-doctor scenario, we're talking about say, a hub-and-spoke hospital, where in a central hospital, a number of senior nurses and doctors are working in a telehealth facility to provide emergency consultations to the emergency room in their own hospital or in the decentralized associated hospitals that might be hundreds of kilometers away, and the situation might be that a patient is coming in with an urgent medical problem. The attending nurse presses a button, the screen comes on and a consultation can take place. The doctors in the centralized unit can remote control a high resolution camera that can focus in on the patient. They have access to the medical charts, to the monitoring data for heart rate. Oxygen levels and things like that, and can really participate with their expertise in diagnosing the patient to make sure that the appropriate care is delivered in a speedy fashion.
1: And interesting anecdote here, even though we're trying to keep this episode short, we must mention that one of the first instances of this operated in the early 70s and it was actually part of a NASA test to deliver telemedicine in southern Arizona, but which was then later used for developing a tele-ICU service for astronauts on the space station.
0: And the second, and by numbers much bigger area, is of course the delivery of telehealth services to patients themselves. And this can start as simple as helplines, for example. In Australia, a service such as Health Direct has delivered services to the general public via telenurses who often work from home to triage calls that are coming in to decide whether a caller should just go to the pharmacy, should see a doctor the next day or present to the emergency room straight away.
1: So such services could also be enhanced by a number of devices that can collect patient data. Some of these could be as simple as fitness trackers or smartwatches or blood pressure cuffs, or they could be as complex as heart rate monitors or blood glucose and oxygen monitors.
0: So this is really the area where patients either receive one-on-one consultation via the phone, via video uplink, or in the case of outpatients of hospitals or for people with chronic diseases, who receive constant monitoring and continuous care and check-ins via electronic devices and electronic means of communication with their dedicated doctors.
1: And of course, the lockdown and sheltering in place meant that both of these types of services, so the medical practitioner to medical practitioner and medical practitioner to patient, really took off over the last few months. And this has happened not only in Australia and the US, but telemedicine services have seen a huge surge in places like China, where China already had over a thousand telehealth companies, including some run by the tech giants like JD.com or Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba.
0: All of which have their own services, JD Health, Ali Health, or WeDoctor, which is of course run by Tencent, the parent company of WeChat.
1: And for services like JD Health, which already took about 10,000 online consultations per day before the pandemic, the pandemic itself meant that that had skyrocketed to about 150,000 online consultations per day.
0: So for many of these services, the pandemic presented an opportunity to deliver their services, often for free, to help out in the pandemic, the app Ping An, for example, set up a so-called antivirus command center to dispatch free face masks around the country. Others treated epilepsy patients for free who could no longer see a doctor, to demonstrate to the government that these services are here to stay and to show patients that these are reliable providers of health care with a view to become part of everyday life in China beyond the pandemic.
1: And in doing so, also relieved some of the pressure on brick and mortar healthcare centers. So for instance, Baidu Health offered online consultations 24 hours a day, employing over 100,000 doctors from across China, and then ended up handling almost 55 million inquiries by the end of April, including about half a million inquiries that came from outside of China.
0: And similarly, here in Australia, Concepts that have long been in discussion, such as virtual hospitals, have during the pandemic seen a rapid acceleration, in some cases an early launch. One of the largest is here in Sydney, the Royal Prince Alfred Virtual Hospital, which during the pandemic has become one of the largest providers of COVID-19 related health they have treated patients in the hospital, but more importantly, by the end of May, almost 500 patients were treated in their own homes with monitoring devices such as pulse axometers to measure oxygen saturation levels and heart rates provided by the hospital to make sure that patients are okay. Twice daily video consultations on top of that then ensured that the health practitioners were on top of any deterioration in those patients that were not immediately located in the physical hospital. And also looking after patients who were in mandatory hotel quarantine because they arrived from overseas. So
1: clearly in and during the pandemic, we've seen many benefits from telemedicine and telehealth, whether that was in the number of people that had access to healthcare, whether that was in reduced opportunities for transmission, or the speed with which they got access to healthcare, but also in the costs that the patients incurred, the ability of specialist doctors to be present in remote locations, sometimes even in different countries and be involved with the care of patients. Maintaining the momentum that telemedicine has gained is likely to run into some challenges. So we thought we'd have a quick look at those because telemedicine is predicted to become big business in China alone. That's to the tune of about $30 billion a year this year alone.
0: So one of the challenges, of course, is the efficacy of diagnosis at a distance, either over the phone or with video uplink. So studies claim that only about 40 to 60, 70% of all diagnoses can reliably be made via telemedicine or telehealth services. There's another issue that doctors report that these diagnoses also can take much longer than physical diagnosis because, you know, cameras have to be pointed. Patients have to be instructed to do certain things that a medical practitioner can do with one or two expert movements. So that might mess with the business aspect of running a practice. It might mess with schedules. The reimbursement of teleconsultations might not be as lucrative for doctors. So they might be less inclined to take on these kinds of services. So these are things that need to be looked into when these services are being kept as an add-on or a complement to traditional health beyond the necessity that existed during the pandemic.
1: There's also the concern expressed by many involved in rural clinics or community hospitals that this might further put a strain on the medical staffing of these services, since they would have access to specialists who are in a remote location. There would be less of an incentive to invest in having people on site.
0: And that's exactly the trade-off that we're talking about here. Is this something that can add to the delivery of health and make existing services better or more convenient for patients, or will providers give in to the temptation to replace rather than enhance services and, you know, not provide incentives for experts or doctors to move out to work in remote locations and instead draw on these kinds of teleservices.
1: And then there is the patient side of the equation. While many of the services work well with patients you already know or you they have a relationship with, it's much more difficult to build relationships in a virtual space. There is also the fact that quite often patients who need most care might be patients from disadvantaged communities who might have less access to technology or to a reliable internet connection or indeed smart devices. There's also the question of the actual infrastructure that is needed to run these services at scale For instance, China has invested large amounts of money into having the infrastructure that would support the delivery of this service, then familiarizing people with this type of service and making that acceptable.
0: Which brings us to the fact that delivering competent and reliable telehealth services also needs training and new skills on the part of the practitioners. Not only do they need to be able to work These technologies, they also need to be trained in remote diagnostic using language, guiding questions to make sure that patients understand what they need to do in order to help with the diagnosis, given that patients are now part of the process of providing data that the doctor or the nurse might need. There's also... The fact that providing telehealth can be quite taxing mentally because people are being confronted potentially with quite difficult situations, people who might be at risk of self-harming, people who are in very difficult remote situations with no immediate physical help. So it's important that there's a support network in place that helps these practitioners in those situations, but also afterwards with the mental ramifications of being in this role.
1: And last but not least, there is the issue of regulation and of having the arrangements in place. For instance, in Australia, there are Medicare arrangements to allow doctors to bill for telehealth, and they will be in place until the end of September, but that is up for review. Then getting insurance companies on board and also pharmacies on board so a full service can be delivered takes creating the frameworks and the right incentive structures by governments.
0: And this is where we want to leave it. So the hope is that coming out of the pandemic, we might be able to keep the best parts of what has been successful tele and virtual health services and to make sure that frameworks are in place to mitigate some of the challenges that we mentioned.
1: Until next time, this has been Corona Business Insights.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: From the University of Sydney Business School, this is Sydney Business Insights, the podcast that explores the future of business.